This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is our... Okay. Oh, oh, Avril. Yeah. Do you want to explain what we're going to do the next three episodes? Okay. Yes, I do. All because right. we're, we've got a little sum for you. You know, maybe it's not the most original idea in the world, but for us, it's special. It's so special. <laughs> so what we decided to do was we're going to take our ne- the next three episodes of Rom Crime, and we are going to cover... Uh, one of the most famous rom-com duos of mm-hmm. all time. I think you probably know who I'm talking about. That would be a Mr. Tom Hanks yep. and a Miss Meg Ryan. Yep. And we're going to chronologically uh, cover the three huge, successful... Rom-coms. But rom-coms, right? yeah. I was, like, I was like, what What else do I want to say? Yeah, but we're gonna, <laughs> so we're doing a trilogy, the Meg and Tom... Trilogy. trilogy over the next three episodes so get excited i'm excited yeah. i was excited to revisit these i knew we were going to always revisit you got mail and see yeah. in seattle but the first one in their like pairing mm-hmm. is or the first time they were paired up is joe versus the volcano right and i don't know about you but i i think i saw this movie when i was like when it came out in 1990, which okay. for some reason this is our thing. Lately, we've just been doing just 1990. 1990. I don't know. <laughs> We're obsessed with the 90s. It's back. The 90s are back. Um, but no, I remember thinking it was like a fun, like I, I, I don't know. I do. I do too. Rom-com I remember being on like, islands. it's really fun. Like they're on this boat. Yeah. I guess I blocked as a kid all of the stuff that came before that in the oh, movie. Yeah. <laughs> Hardcore. So I guess. Should I just dive in? I know yeah. I always say that. Should I just dive in? Should she dive? should just dive I'm right dive, on in. Let's dive into not the volcano, but Joe versus the, the volcano. There you go. Very good. <laughs> I know. I'm witty. Um, so, so like I said, came out in 1990. It's written and directed by John Patrick Shanley. Mm. And let The playwright. Me, the playwright. Exactly. Yeah. So he's coming off hot. Of from Moonstruck, which was 1987, and such a freaking good movie. It's such a good movie. He was he wrote that. He didn't yeah. direct it, but he was the writer. And so people were like, and there's like you know, I think he got best screenplay. I think he for did that, too for yeah. the Academy Awards. And I don't think I know. Snap out of it. Uh huh. Exactly. God, that's a one day. One mm-hmm. day. Cher is one of my yeah. you know gurus. Uh, and so he also like you said he was a playwright, and I so he did Doubt. He mm-hmm. doubt, doubt on Broadway as well as um, he, he, it's a Pulitzer Prize drama. And of course, it was a movie, too, with Meryl Streep and Viola Davis and the guy on the guy, Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's the guy. Sorry, and yes. Amy Adams. A really good cast. Great cast. Great movie. Not maybe not a one you watch every year. 
But no, it's one you need to see, but then you're probably like, I don't need to see that again. That's right. Yeah. So John Patrick Shanley is also like a true New Yorker. He was born in 1950, still lives there to this day. I was actually in a play that he wrote. Uh, it was a, a, how many offs? Off by the power of five. I don't know. Off Broadway? Yeah. To the to the ninth degree or to something? The, yeah. <laughs> I did a, a really, it was it's a really dark, like about sort of the saddest people, but it's called Savage in Limbo. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, I had a great time. It was one of my favorite um, acting moments in the world that I've ever had. It was actually might have been the last one right before I got pregnant. Oh. Yeah. So anywho. Um, so he's a good writer. Okay. And I got the screenplay because I wanted to read some of the... Because, you know, whenever a playwright's writing a script, it's a little more... Creative, a little more descriptive. Yeah. So it, it opens on like the saddest day in the world it's in new york city no it's in staten island Mm -hmm. so joe who tom hanks plays this guy joe is like drudging it into work in the screenplay it says we're in color now but it's a gray world it's an ugly building about the size of a city block and a couple of stories high it's surrounded by hurricane fenced topped with barbed wire outside the fence is a muddy parking lot on the fence is a sign that reads american panoscope corp and then it says, home of the rectal probe. Mm-hmm. And you see this like drudging of it's, it's very like, I mean, I don't want to be pretentious here, but it was written and I'm like, that's true. It's very Kafkaesque. It's really like dark and like angular and like they're they're marching towards their, it's seemingly like, like death. Like our prison. Yeah. And they're all wearing gray. All of the workers. And you see Joey gets out of his car and he's like steps in mud. Everything sucks. Um, it's a gray winter's morning. It's raining or snowing or just has or is about to. I just thought that was like, it really sets up the tone. I, for one thing, I, so he gets it all the way into the bowels mm-hmm. of the, uh, of the universe of this like disgusting factory. industry factory yeah. in Staten Island. That makes rectal probes. Makes, and his job, he goes to the advertising department, which cracks me up because yeah. I work in advertising. Um, it's the, his job is like he's the librarian of medical copy, something like this. It's like not even a job. And it's like gross, disgusting fluorescent lights. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so, but I will say this. It takes about eight minutes of like almost no dialogue. And you can tell... This is such a, and I love theater so much, but he is trying to make you feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so you are miserable. So by the time we get to like the boat or whatever, you know, we'll, we'll talk through the synopsis. We're like, oh, thank Jesus. God. Yeah, thank you for getting us off Staten Island. But like, there's a lot of reviews and I'll get through some of them about just like talking shit about that first part. But I will say it was cool. It was kind of like art housey. Mm-hmm. You recently watched it. I watched it last night. How do you feel about the beginning? Well, were I mean, you just like, what the fart is going on? I just, well, I just remember being like, while I was watching it, but there's this really beautiful little, I don't know if it's an Easter egg because it smacks mm. you right over the head. I mean, it's very obvious. But as he's walking through this basically like death field on his way to his horrible mind numbing soul sucking job (laughs) through the cracks in the ground is like a single little daisy that's growing up and then somebody steps on it and squashes it super poetic so real in your face but you know also you know even in like 
industrial like wastelands life finds a way to mm. grow and i feel like that's kind of that. the yeah. point of the movie that is you are totally right um okay so like i said i'm just gonna mention again tom hanks meg ryan meg ryan plays she did this before it was like with eddie murphy cool you know she plays three different characters she plays every woman every one of his like sort of i guess i was gonna say romantic uh partners but that's not true it's like whoever a female in his his yeah. uh world i guess but so the first woman he plays she plays is this little mousy receptionist named Dee Dee in mm-hmm. the office and she's just like oh yeah oh, oh, oh god oh yeah mm-hmm. and he's he his character is this person who's like always sick he's like constantly going to the doctor chronically ill yeah never feels good mm-hmm. and and he hates his job he hates his bosses and he and he He's like, I got to go. He gets there and he finally is like, I got to go to work. And his boss is like, why are you going to go to work? This is just a crappy place to work. And the, he has like this little lamp that's got like a Pacific Island type mm-hmm. theme on it. And the boss makes him turn it off because you can't bring an outside he, light. Yeah. Even though he's like these, uh, what are they called? Fluorescent lights. The fluorescent lights. lights give me headaches and they make me feel like my soul is being sucked from my body. And he's like, put the lamp, take the lamp off the table right now. I'd be like, I quit. I can't handle bad lighting. I need natural lighting or I will kill myself. And I don't mean to say that flippantly, but it definitely makes me fully depressed. If yeah. I don't have light. I think it's a proven fact that I remember being, being in, in like school a dungeon. As a kid, yeah. Thinking I can't, st- these lights are making me feel psychotic. Yeah. I remember feeling like my eyes were shaking. Yeah. So, but I was a little sensitive to light, I guess. Um, so anyways, he leaves to go to his doctor's appointment. He visits this Dr. Ellison, played by Robert Stack, which uh, is, he's from Unsolved Mysteries. Yes. And he's very, he has a very doctor-like, you know, mm-hmm. quality about him. But yeah, he's like, here's doctor, I'm, I'm, I'm suffering and I'm just da da da. But the doctor says, well, we actually found something. Um, you're suffering from a brain cloud. It's a psychosomatic illness brought on by residual emotional turmoil that he experienced in his previous occup- occupation as a firefighter. Mm-hmm. So essentially, like there's like a dark layer of like a gray layer of tissue that is formed in the middle of his brain. And he has about six months to live. Yeah, maybe there'll be no symptoms. Yeah. But you've got six months to live. Exactly. Hold on. Let me see if I can find that. Um I, I printed that because I thought it was funny um, the way they said it. One second. Fine. Flipping it. through this massive 129 page. Wow. Uh, yeah. He says, uh, the doc- or Dr. Ellison says, um, there's a black fog of tissue running right down the center of your brain. It's very rare. It will spread at a regular rate. It's very destructive and incurable. How long? Six months. You can pretty much count on it being about that. It's not painful. Your brain will simply fail, followed abruptly by your body. You can depend on at least four to five healthy months, healthy, perfect months. But what about, what are you talking about, doctor? I don't feel good right now because he's saying it's symptomless. Yeah. And the guy's like, that's the ironic part, really. Mr. Banks, you're a hypochondriac. There's nothing wrong with you that has anything to do with your symptoms. My guess is your experiences in the fire department were extremely traumatic and you experienced the imminent possibility of death several times, right? And he nods. You survived, but the cumulative anxiety of those brushes with death left you habitually fearful about your physical person. And so he's like, I'm not sick except for this terminal disease, which has no symptoms. Mm -hmm. That's right. It's was only it was only because of your insistence on having so many tests that we happened to discover the problem. <laughs> it's so interesting. I was just listening to an episode of Smartless 
yeah. um, which I love that podcast. Yeah, and it was with too. Michael Moore. And he they talked oh, a lot about how like one of the biggest issues, you know, in, in America and so many of the problems is that we Americans more than more than a lot of other cultures, they compare Canada and America f- throughout the whole episode, which Got is it. pretty in- entertaining. <laughs> um, but that culturally, Americans live in fear. Yeah. 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 And how like how much that affects so many of the decisions that are I made. That. And the, yeah. the decision made in fear is not going to be a Yeah, good not going to be the right one. Yeah. yeah. That's a huge thing. So interesting. That's like similar theme to what you mm, just said. Of yes. Like your fear of dying has killed you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> has given you a brain cloud. Exactly. Okay. So, um, right. So he quits his job. And he asks Meg Ryan, number one out, Dee Dee. She agrees. They have a great time at this dinner. They're about to get sexy times at his house. Yes. Oh, and I wanted to say they sing. Um, he gets to the band to come play um, the song from My Fair Lady on the street where you live. Oh, they sing yeah. it in Spanish. They're at, like, I think a Spanish restaurant. And they come over and they're playing it on the guitar. And I just thought, we must watch My Fair Lady because now it's come Ooh, up twice in a row. That's true. Yeah. Last one. What was Pygmalion? And now, and now they're singing on the street where you live. Oh, and that just shows you. I don't know the words. I love it. I wish you did. Next time we'll work on that. For I'm sure it'll come up for Sleepless in Seattle. That's next, right? Yes. Okay. Oh my God. Okay. So the next day, Joe. So he, yeah, he tells her she's done. He's dying, and she's like, I can't do this, and just leaves. So he doesn't get any sexy times, which is unfortunate for him because he's dying, right? Because he's got only six months to live. He's gonna make the most of it. The next day. He's approached by a wealthy industrialist at his house, actually. Yeah, who barges off- in yeah, his house. Barges in, like, is like, listen, man. He barges in. He offers Joe unlimited money for the next 20 days if he will agree to sacrifice himself by jumping into a fiery volcano on the Pacific island known as Waponi. And I want to just mention here, it doesn't happen. They don't get to the... F- this is the other crazy thing that I don't remember. I mean, I think they're on the island for, like, 15 minutes in the movie. Oh, yeah. Like, it's, it's like nothing. It's nothing. I kept watching and being like, when are we going to get to this island? Side note there. But uh-huh. I think it's pretty racist and pretty appropriative yeah. of yeah, a Pacific not, island culture. Yeah, it's not It's not well done no. in that aspect. There's I was no, really uncomfortable. Yeah. I was like, this is... 1990s, man. Yeah, I guess. It's a just, lot of discomfort. We're learning more. Um, yes. Okay, so... So sorry, he's going to give him unlimited money for 20 days yep. if he will go sacrifice himself yeah. um, by jumping into a volcano to save this island. Because there's something called Berbera or whatever that he, some sort of element that he needs to make his superconductors because he's a rich person. And I guess every year the native people of Waponi would usually sacrifice themselves. But this year they're like, you know what? I'm afraid. I don't want to die. So they ha- so this guy this offers to find someone to yeah. sacrifice for them. So they will give him that natural yeah. element he needs for his superconductors mm-hmm. because the rich eat our buttholes. Okay, <laughs> so um, he's like, yeah, I'll do it. Why not? Yeah, I agree. And he the so he rents a limo, <laughs> and he also gets like a limo driver with that. And the guy's name is Marshall, and I kind of love this guy. He is because uh, because. Joe Banks is like, I don't know what, I guess I should get some new clothes and I should get, I'm going on a journey, so I need some luggage, luggage, which is a great scene because he goes into the luggage store and the character of the luggage salesman is hilarious. Uh, He's like, oh, a journey, an adventure. Mm. And he's like, I have just the thing for you. And so he shows him these steamer trunks that are like probably 
like waterproof yeah. and it's um, like the highest end yeah they're probably very expensive even in 1990 uh-huh. and he goes i'll take and i'll take four mm-hmm. and so he's like may you live a thousand years <laughs> and so he leaves with his his trunks and then he's asking the guy his driver is like well what uh, what kind of clothes should i get and marshall the guy is like you're hinting around about clothes it happens that clothes are very important to me mr banks mm-hmm. clothes make the man i believe that you say to me, you want to go shopping, you want to buy clothes, but you don't know what kind. You leave that hanging in the air like I'm going to fill in the blank. That to me is like asking me who you are. And I don't know who you are. I don't want to know. <laughs> it's taken my it's taken me my whole life to find out who I am. And I am tired now. You hear what I'm saying? And the guy's like, he's like, well, wait a minute. And he gets in the back of the car and sits next to him. And he's like, what's your situation? Explain it to me. And right. they have this like great moment. And then they have like a buddy day. And then a montage, which yeah. you know I love. A good montage. So, a makeover montage, if you will. Which, rom-com checklist. Yep. It's all in there. So he's ready to go. He flies to Los Angeles. Meg Ryan number two picks him up, which just happens to be this great, Grainamore, I think is his name, this the industrious. Yeah, the guy with the superconductors. His his daughter. Mm-hmm. And her name's Angelica. And she's very L.A. Yes. I'm sound, talking New York, but she's very L.A. She's like, I'm an artist and a poet. And, and then she's, she's like, want to hear one of my poems? Yes. Oh, my God. It's And a- then she reads it to him and she's like, do you want me to say it again? <laughs> and he's just <laughs> like, like, you're okay. weird. Wait, I wrote down the poem because I thought it was funny. Long ago, the delicate tangles of his hair covered the emptiness of my hands. <laughs> <laughs> want me to read it again? <laughs> Long ago, the delicate tangles of his hair covered the emptiness of my hands. (laughs) Anyways, the next morning, Angelica takes Joe to her father's yacht, the Tweedledee. The captain is her half-sister, Patricia, played by Meg Ryan number three. Mm-hmm. Patricia's like the most beautiful one. Like so she's we, the normal Meg Ryan. She's yeah. just Meg Ryan as as she really is. 100%. There's no like weird wigs <laughs> or weird way of talking. Exactly. The first Meg Ryan is like a mousy brown. I almost didn't recognize her. I was yeah. like, I know that's Meg Ryan. The second one, Angelica has like this fiery red hair, and she's a caricature of herself. Mm-hmm. And the third, Patricia, is the most gorgeous with the long blonde hair blonde and hair. A more like real seeming person exactly um so she's captaining this ship because her father promised to give it to her if she did this little right if she took job joe to dropped him off at the volcano she could have the yacht yep and so they've got he's got his steamers on the car on the car on the yacht it's got his four giant steamers it's not a huge yacht but it's like a big you know big enough boat yeah so they're heading out to the pacific islands and on their way out they get hit by a typhoon Patricia's knocked unconscious and she's like, you know, flown off the boat. Yeah. After, and Joe jumps in to rescue her because, you know, he's a firefighter he, mm-hmm. or whatever. And then lightning strikes the boat sinking the yacht and all of a sudden popping out of the wreckage and the fire and the flames <laughs> are his four steamer trucks. Mm-hmm. Trunks. And he manages to like belt Tie them together, together and makes a raft. And so they spend like the next, I don't know how many days on this raft. She's unconscious. Mm-hmm. He's like feeding her little teaspoons of Perrier. Um, there's a moment where, and I actually learned the song. Oh my God, am I going to try it? He sings her a song as they're like floating. I'm going to try it. Oh. <gasps> Get so, out of so town. So my ukulele might be out of tune because it's like I let the kids play with it and now it's pretty fucked. I'm sorry. Um, <gasps> this is awesome. I did not know I was about to get I know, an impromptu live performance. It 
Eo Eo Cowboy Eo 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 Cowboy 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 Under the moon I was riding my horse By the Rio Grande And all of them coyotes singing in a prairie symphony. I was riding my horse down by the Rio Grande when I seen me a cowboy, cowboy, cowboy riding toward me. Bravo! Idiot. Nice job. Thank you. I practiced that, and then it's only two um, chords. It's just uh, it's F and and G, that was which awesome. is like the easiest chords on the. <laughs> it's been a while. I haven't played in like years. Anywho, so he plays that while she's like, and it's beautiful. It's nighttime. It's the moon. It's like this gorgeous little moment, and you can tell pa- John Patrick Shanley, the director, is like, this is the glorious moment. He also wrote that. He wrote that little song. Oh, isn't that cute? Amazing. Writer director. Also into music. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So then, where am I at? They got the... Uh, la, 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 Joel doles out small... Yeah, yeah, yeah. When Patricia finally awakens, she is deeply touched by Joe's self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Then they find that they have luckily drifted to their destination. Yeah. Isn't that nice? <laughs> they, they made it to the island? Yep. And the ponies treat them to a grand feast. Um, their leader, Chief Toby, asks one of them... One, uh, one Asks one last time if anyone else... So he asks the rest of his tribe... Will anyone else The chief is played by Abe Bogota. I can't even. It's just uncomfortable. And it's then, wrong, but it's also Abe Bogota. I know. He, and he's he's very cute. And then who else is in it? Um, Nathan Lane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like, what? And it's, they have some reasoning why there's white people too. It's like some ship of like half Irish, half Jewish people got stranded on the island. So apparently that's why there's a... Um, Mm. a melting pot on the island but i mean and apparently they're like addicted to orange soda which i'm like how did yeah there was was, it was like a full-on commercial for sunkissed yeah (laughs) yeah it was just bizarre um so yeah so we asked everybody does anybody want to do it no takers so um yeah it's up to joe yeah patricia tries to stop him he's heading towards a volcano she's and then she's declaring love for him she's like joe I've fallen in love with you. I've never loved anybody. I don't know how it happened. And I've never even slept with you or anything. And now you're going to kill yourself? She's like, let's bone first for God's sake. Yeah, like, what's the rush? I know. <laughs> and he's like, you love me? Yes, I love you. I can feel my, I can feel my heart. I feel like I'm going crazy. You can't die and leave me here on this stinking earth without you. And he's like, I got to do it. But why? The chief doesn't even want to do it. Because I've wasted my whole life and now I'm going to die. I've got a chance to die like a man and I'm going to take it. I've got to take it. Toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm, Come mm-hmm. on. You don't have to be a man. Just be kind. Yeah. Um, and she's like, I love you. And he's like, he screams back at yeah. her. I love you too. I've never loved any, you know, in perfect right. like Tom Hanks. Yeah. He's like, I've never loved anybody either. It's great. I'm glad. But the timing stinks. <laughs> so he kisses her and waves to the chief and they and he starts to walk up the path even even right. still. He's like, I love you, but still I'm doing this. Um, And he, she's like, Joe, because he fall, she follows him and he's like, get out of here. Go back down. She's like, no. And he, she says, marry me. Right. He's like, what? <laughs> marry me. And she's yelling to the chief. Get over here. Marry Could us. you come up here and just like and. What's the hell? I I want him to marry us. Uh, and Joe's like, I'm jumping into this volcano. Um, 
and they get married. <laughs> Even though Joe's like, I don't want to get married. What's the problem? You're afraid of commitment. You'll have to love me and honor me for about 30 seconds. You can't handle that. And he's like, all right, marry us. <laughs> <laughs> so they do so. And then it's a beautiful scene, actually. I think mm-hmm. I might take the clip so you can hear it. And if I don't, please, I'm sorry. But <laughs> they, they end up jumping in together. But mm-hmm. as they're jumping in, the volcano's erupting. So, you know, magical disbelief here. Yeah. They get shot out into the ocean without any... Right. They jump into the volcano and then they're basically like, like as a big rush of air or lava or whatever, it blows them Spits right out. back out into, into the, the ocean. ocean. Yeah. And they're... And they're like, we're going to drown. But, but her yes, daddy, we're... her daddy pal- pulls them up and... Uh, I thought it was the steamer trunks They again. come up. Yeah. Oh, maybe... You know what? Because the truth is, is it is the steamer trunks and he's... But, I, but in the screenplay... The oh. dad comes there. Oh, okay. So that's the difference. I was say, in the movie, it's what they're. She's like, "We're gonna drown," or he says that because they're in the ocean that's and they're right. treading water and they're like spitting it out. And then she's like, "It's don't worry about it. Everything's gonna work out." And then ten seconds later, they pop out. The steamer trunks pop out and they have a new raft. I love it. Um, Those suitcases were worth every penny. Exactly. <laughs> so it's so okay. Let's see. One thing is they find out because she starts. They start talking at the island sinks and Joe and Patricia land near Joe's trusty steamer trunks. Like we said, at first, super happy about this. Joe tells Patricia, though, because now that they're married and they're alive, about his fatal situation, about the brain cloud. And she recognizes the name of his doctor. And she's like, that's one of my dad's besties. <laughs> that's and my dad's doctor. Like, my dad is his only patient. Yeah. And he's like, real- they realize that Joe has been set up. He's not dying at all. Right. They just took Needed advantage of just- a hypochondriac. Yeah. So they can live happily after ever after. Bada bing. So Bada boom. <laughs> normally, I'll do like reviews before I do the synopsis, but I felt like... Not I, everybody has necessarily seen this one. Yeah. So I'm going to give you some reviews okay, now. Okay, great. I I've can't got, wait. I know. It's I'm just so curious. So not... It doesn't get the greatest reviews like when it came out, but Roger Ebert did really like it. And okay. people either really love this movie or, or they are hate like, it. Yeah. what the hell is this? So... <laughs> Roger Ebert says, gradually during the opening scenes of Joe versus the volcano, my heart began to quicken until finally I realized a wondrous thing. I had not seen this movie before. Mm. Most (laughs) movies I have seen before. Most movies you have seen before. Most movies are constructed out by bits and pieces of other movies, like little engines built from cinematic erector sets, but not Joe versus the volcano. It is not an entirely successful movie, so he he does admit that, but it is new and fresh and not shy of taking chances. And the dialogue in it is actually worth listening, listening to because it's written with wit and romance. Joe versus the volcano achieves a kind of magnificent goofiness. Hanks and Ryan are the right actors to inhabit it, which I agree, mm-hmm. because you can never, because you can never catch them going for the gag that isn't there. They inhabit the logic of this bizarre world and play by its rules. Hanks is endearing in the title role because in the midst of these astonishing sets and unbridled flights of fancy, he underplays. Some of the movie's sequences are so picturesque, they do themselves in. The Native Tribe, for example, is a joke that Shanley is unable to pull, pull off. So thank yep. God he like, admits that. And what's strongest about the movie is that it does possess a philosophy, an idea about life. The idea is the same idea contained in Moonstruck, that at night, in those corners of our minds, what we deny by day, magical things can happen in the moon shadows. And if they can't, A, they should, and B, we should always 
in any event, act as if they can. Oh, good review. Yeah. So he really liked it. Yeah, he got 3.5 stars out of four. Five. Oh, right. I think right. he has a four star rating or some crazy okay. thing like that. Oh, this is. <laughs> oh, maybe I went a little crazy. This one's Flavor Wire. And Flavor Wire. Flavor Wire. And they say, you know, they talk about Hanks being a good anchor. He's usually a straight man, but the real star here is Ryan's triple play. She does her first character, co-worker Dee Dee, as a brunette with a high-pitched screwball voice. That's right, she talks like this. And with a sense of wonder and charm, typical of those films, watch her face as they're serenaded during their one and only date, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Ryan number two is Bridges' daughter, Angelica, a bad poet and bad painter that she plays as a brassy redhead vamp who says of LA, it stinks, but it's a great town. And Ryan, number three, is Angelica's half-sister, Patricia, which finds the actor in her familiar blonde locks and hewing closer to type. She's still diz- she's still dizzily charming, but the first two characters are what stick. Smaller characters, turns out, that give her the freedom to try wild things that she is so seldom afforded in ingenue roles. Mm. So sure. Okay. We got Rolling Stones here. Rolling Stones says, poor Joe, stuck in a soul-sucking job and diagnosed with a terminal brain cloud. So why wouldn't he take an offer from an eccentric industrialist to live out his last days in luxury? (laughs) There's one catch. He has to jump into a volcano in the South Pacific to appease some angry Polynesian gods. Playwright John Patrick Shanley's directorial debut debut is (laughs) one apart absurdist fairy tale. The first half is the closest we'll ever get to Hank starring in a Tim Burton movie. (laughs) And one part classic romantic comedy with the star paired against not one, not two, but three different Meg Ryans. Um, yeah, Hanks lets you see this loser stuck in an existential, existential funk slowly opened up to the world around him. And then once he's met the woman of his dreams, decides to actually, decides it's actually a world worth living in. That his performance is matched by Brian, who gets to play downbeat, ditzy, and delightful, only to make everything sweeter. There's a reason they're still considered a great screen couple, and mm-hmm. a reason why this cult film is still so beloved. Whither thou goest, I go. Yeah. So it sounds like mostly positive reviews. I know. It was. I was like searching for, you know, some shit talking on right. the Pacific Island appropriation so part. Didn't find it other than no. it's a joke he doesn't pull off. Yeah, exactly. And then I, because um, if you guys want to check out our social media, we, we will have a um, a cocktail on there. It's called Joe versus the Volcano. Mm-hmm. And at first when I was, because I, I did the cocktail this week. Mm-hmm. And at first when I was like looking it up, I was like, oh, maybe I do like a tiki themed. And I'm like, is tiki cultural appropriation? I mean, it kind it, it yeah, kind of is. Yeah. So anyways, I decided to not do anything tiki. So you will see what yes. uh, I came up I'm with. I'm excited to see what you came up with. So all in all, Joe, Joe versus Volcano was a interesting watch i there's things i really enjoyed about it Mm -hmm. character things and there's things i was like what yeah there are yeah i think it's just so unusual especially in this day and age to see a movie like this so to roger ebert's point this is a movie you haven't seen before yeah and that i think is why it's worth watching agreed yeah so there you go there you have it thank you so much for that okay so there was a lot of things floating around my head when we decided to do this. And I knew this was going to be the first one. And I was like, okay. So, of course, my first Google search was, has anyone ever covered up a murder with a volcano? Ooh. And weirdly, so not intentionally, but I did find a story. Sorry, let me find it. Um, 
where a shroud of ash from the eruption of Mount St. Helens actually did hide the bodies of two young women for a year and a half who had been murdered. Um, And... These, this case is actually still open. The, these murders uh, have been tied to two separate serial killers. So um, there was Randall Brent Woodfield, who was known as the I-5 killer. Oh, yeah. And then there was uh, Martin Lee Sanders, who was basically like a killer in the Pacific Northwest. Because they were hitchhiking from Spokane to get back to Alaska, where they were from. But there was it's unsolved and it's just like a little blip on Wikipedia. So I didn't feel like I could really flesh that story out. But I did actually find a story where a volcano inadvertently covered up a murder. Um, Then I thought, okay, murders like on a boat at sea. Didn't find anything I wanted to do. I did find an interesting story because the suitcases kept popping up. Yeah. About this um, nurse, American nurse who like murdered her mom in Bali and like hid her in a suitcase and... Oh, my God. And I thought, I really almost went for that one. I also found out that there was an Abe Vigoda death hoax that people have been saying he died. He did die, for real, not too long ago. But since 1982, he has been, like, announced dead on, like, news broadcasts incorrectly on accident. And it became, like, a running joke. And I was like, is there a story there? (laughs) Poor guy. Poor Abe Vigoda. But, But ultimately, what really stuck out to me, Vanya, which I feel like, you know, it's the the doctor that lied to his hypochondriac patient to get him to agree to kill himself to benefit a rich dude. And I'm like, that is so effed up. Mm. Medical malpractice suit, please. Yes. Joe, you're going to be rich for the rest of your life after this, too, <laughs> if you know what you're doing. Get a good lawyer. So I decided I wanted to find a medical malpractice crime story. Yes. And of course, there's a lot of them. But medical mal- malpractice doesn't always fall under the category, usually doesn't fall under the category of criminal because it's 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 more like a civil An suit or, or, or mis- negligence, you know, negligence or-, or misdiagnosis. But I found a story of a doctor that actually committed crimes like in the operating room. Oh, no. So I'm going to tell you the story of Dr. Christopher Dunch, a.k.a. Dr. Death. There is a whole podcast called Dr. Death that's been turned into a television show on Peacock starring uh, Joshua Jackson of Dawson's Creek fame. Um, I haven't checked it out, but I kind of want to because I love him. But this story is wild. So Dr. Christopher Dunch was a neurosurgeon in Texas who from 2011 to 2013 operated on 38 patients. 31 of those patients were left permanently paralyzed or seriously injured, and two of those patients didn't survive. Oh. Of 38, 31 were left permanently paralyzed (gasps) or severely injured, and two others didn't survive at all. So that means what? I mean, I feel like past the third one, somebody should have been like, investigate this guy. Don't do this anymore. Okay, right? Well, we'll get into that. So... Raised in Memphis, Tennessee by his mom, a school teacher, and his dad, a physical therapist and Christian missionary, Chris was a smart, popular kid. He got straight A's and played football. Everyone described him as someone who believed that he could be the best at everything if he just tried hard enough. So it was no surprise to anyone when he announced his decision to go to medical school and become a neurosurgeon. All right. So in 1995, he completes his undergraduate degree. And then continues, you know, like residencies, internships, fellowships. In 2010, he completed the MD, PhD, and neurosurgery residency programs at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. And he also completed a spine fellowship program at the Sems Murphy Clinic. 
However, during Christopher's fourth year of residency, he was suspected of being high on cocaine while performing an operation. Uh-oh. When he refused a drug test, he was sent to a program for impaired physicians, where he spent several months before being allowed to return to his residency. So someone was like, that dude's high. And they were like, we need to take a drug test. He was like, nah. And they were like, okay, we'll just send you away for a few months. I'm sure you're going to get better. Oh, All right. God. So oh, there's so much about this that is not, I mean, this individual is horrible, but the system that allowed him to exist in the first place is, oh. is a, a, a bigger part of, I think, why this ties in so nicely with Joe versus the volcano. Like the system, the money, yeah. the rectal probe makers. <laughs> All right. So... Uh, at the start of Dr. D's career, Chris focused more on like the PhD aspect. So like the research, he really loved um, researching. He ran two separate labs where he raised millions of dollars in grant funds. Um, he has name appeared in several papers and on multiple patents. Um, and so that seemed like he was going to kind of lean into that rather than like the surgical aspect of neurosurgery. Right. More of like he was going to be like somebody who created stuff or found out cool stuff during research. Um, but while he was... In like mid-residency running these labs, Christopher reconnects with his junior high best buddy, um, Jerry Summers. So they'd kind of fallen away after high school, but they'd been best friends. And now that he's living in Memphis, where he was raised, they kind of reconnected. And these two, they like to have fun. So they, um, Jerry Summers says that the first time he ever did acid, oh. it was because Christopher Dunch gave it to him. And they love to party. So in fact... A friend of theirs recalled one of Christopher's birthday parties during this time period of his residency where everyone was dropping at LSD, snorting cocaine, and drinking profusely. And as the sun came up while everyone else was coming down, Christopher was putting on his lab coat and headed off to the hospital for his morning rounds. Like it was no big deal. Ooh. So um, potential serious drug issues yeah. with our, our Dr. Dunch here. Um, Chris and Jerry also loved going to strip clubs. They would go at least once a week. And at one of, uh, one of these clubs on said night, Chris met a dancer named Wendy Young. The two started dating. And three months later, Wendy was pregnant. So he's now in a relationship. She's going to have a baby. At first, he's like super pissed off about it. But then he decides to man up. And he's like, no, we're going to get married and have kids. And everything's going to be great. And around the same time, Chris is offered a position with the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute in North Dallas and decides, you know, got a baby on the way. Like, surgeons make lots of money. Oh, okay. So um, Chris, his girlfriend, soon-to-be wife, Wendy, and his best friend, Jerry, all moved down to Dallas in the summer of 2011. So after arriving in Dallas, Chris secures a deal with the Baylor Regional Medical Center at Plano, And he's given surgical rights at this specific hospital. So he's got a job with the Institute, but this hospital is where he'll perform procedures. Okay, got it. Um, Unfortunately, Chris is fired after performing only one surgery from the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute because he performed a surgery and then immediately flew off to Vegas without telling anyone he was going or securing another surgeon to like do post-surgical checks on his patient, make sure everything was okay. He just like took off and they couldn't get a hold of him. So they fired him. But just because he didn't work at that institute anymore, um, he did. He still had his surgical privileges at Baylor. Um, so he decided to start his own practice. 
and his first hire was a nurse practitioner named Kimberly Morgan, who also quickly would become his mistress and would uh, share some highly interesting things um, later on in court about him. Uh, Chris was confident and charismatic, and he had no problem convincing patients that he was the only doctor who could fix their problems. But while his patients believed they were in excellent hands, other surgeons at Baylor Hospital, most notably a Dr. Randall Kirby, couldn't help but notice that most of Dunch's patients left the hospital in worse shape than they'd been in when they arrived. In fact, Dr. Kirby remembers watching Dr. D. botch's simple procedure by refusing to use a scalpel to remove a spinal disc and insisting on using another instrument that ended up causing permanent damage. Oh, my God. Right, so I'm going to tell you about the surgeries at Baylor. Okay, the first patient he operated on was Kenneth Fennell. Um, and after being operated on by Dr. D, he was left with chronic pain after Dunch operated on the wrong part of his back. Oh. Due to debilitating pain, um, he later had to have a second operation by Dunch to relieve it and was left significantly paralyzed in his legs. Oh. He required months of rehabilitation to be able to walk with a cane and was left unable to walk for more than 30 feet or stand for more than a few minutes without having to sit down. Lee Passmore, oh, who was bad. a Collin County medical investigator, experienced chronic pain and limited mobility after Dunch cut a ligament, which was not normally touched during this type of surgery. Um, he misplaced hardware in his spine, placed a screw which kept the hardware in place in an incorrect location, and stripped the threads so that it could not be removed. <gasps> um, even if Dunch had not stripped the threads, he placed the screw in a location that would have caused Passmore to bleed out and die if it was to be what removed. What the heck is he doing? Um, vascular surgeon Mark Hoyle, who assisted with the operation, later recalled that Dunch seemed oblivious to considerable bleeding. Um, he became so disturbed by Dunch's actions that at one point he physically restrained him from continuing to operate on this patient. He later told Dunch to his face that he was dangerous. Um, and Dr. Hoyle started to think that maybe Chris was, like, insane. Uh-oh. Then there's Barry Morgeloff, the owner of a pool service company who was left with bone fragments in his spinal canal after Dunch tried to pull a damaged disc out of his back with a grabbing tool. That's the one I mentioned. Oh. Um, he lost function of most of his left side and required a wheelchair. Dr. Kirby assisted with this surgery and recalled Dunch continued making mistakes even after having the correct anatomy, anatomy pointed out to him. Uh, Morgoloff later recalled that he walked out on a follow-up visit with, with Dunch when he displayed clear signs of being intoxicated. Oh, my God. So after he was, you know, needed to be in a wheelchair, and then he went to go talk to his doctor who was inebriated, and he was like, uh-uh, I'm out of here. Then... We get to something super sad. Remember BFF Jerry? That like was his best friend. They oh, reconnected yes, yes, and he yes, moved yes, down to Dallas yeah. and kind of worked as like his assistant. He would run errands, get his dry cleaning, balance his checkbook. Um, he had been in a car accident and had chronic neck pain. So he decided that he wanted to have his good buddy, Dr. D, um, perform surgery on his neck to fix the problem. And after the surgery... Jerry woke up completely paralyzed from the neck down, a quadriplegic. So the anesthesiologist who worked on the surgery recalled that Jerry lost almost uh, 1,200 milliliters of blood, more than a fifth of your blood volume, and almost 24 times the typical amount of blood lost in a spinal fusion. The nurses and other staffers who took part in the surgery fully expected Summers to have revision, revision surgery, but Dunch refused to go back in for a revision. Summers later, because Dunch wouldn't come see him, wouldn't visit him after it happened. This is his best friend, you guys. Wouldn't come see him. 
And Summers became so completely upset. You know, he's paralyzed. His friend slash doctor won't come visit him. Starts screaming to anyone that will listen that he had done an eight ball of cocaine with Dr. Dunch the night before the surgery. Oh, my God. And this finally gets Christopher Dunch's attention. He is asked to do a drug test. It's negative. And then later on, Summers uh, did say that he he lied. He was just trying to get his, the friend, Dr. Dunch, to come see him by you know, being like, he does drugs. Yeah. Oh um, which God. I kind of get. You're like, yeah. get your ass in here and tell me what the hell's going on. But um, he remained quadriplegic for the rest of his life. He died in 2021 of an infection related to complications oh, from the surgery. That is so upsetting. Yes. So after this time, enough doctors are like, what the actual F? And enough of the results have been so bad that they temporarily like strip him. They suspend him. They do an investigation, but they can't find anything that specifically suggests that he's I don't know how they can't find this, but like that he shouldn't be performing surgery. So they let him come back on, but they kind of scale back the types of surgeries they let him do, like only super simple spinal procedures that are like in and out same day type stuff. And his very first patient after he's um, brought back in after suspension is Kelly Martin, who will be the first patient of Dr. Dunch's to die. Oh, my God. Um, She suffered from a major arterial injury during a routine back operation. Uh, Dunch continued operating on her despite clear signs that Martin was losing massive amounts of blood. He refused to abort the surgery even after a trauma surgeon um, colleague and an anesthesiologist warned him about, like, she's losing too much blood. You need to, like, sew her up. We got to stop this. He refused to acknowledge anything was wrong, um, making it impossible for the ICU team's efforts to save her and when martin awoke from anesthesia she was screaming and clawing at her legs uh forcing the icu team to re-anesthetize her um dunch also stayed out in the icu waiting room writing notes rather than attending to his patient patient um even after kelly went into hemorrhage cardiac arrest and bled to death he never went back in to check on her okay so after he finally had a patient die not just suffer severe permanent like bodily harm uh they find that he has failed to meet their standards of care and they permanently revoke his surgical privileges the hospital initiates a peer review but dunch resigns rather than face being fired to avoid the costs of fighting and possibly losing a wrongful termination suit hospital officials reach a deal with dunch's lawyers in which dunch will um will resign in return for Baylor Plano issuing a letter stating that there were no issues with him while he worked at their hospital. And had Dunch been fired rather than been allowed to resign, uh, Baylor Plano would have been required to report him to the National Practitioner uh, Data Bank, which is intended for like every hospital across the country to know about doctors that shouldn't be allowed to operate. It's so frustrating. So not only does he get to resign, but he's also provided with a letter of like recommendation. Oh, my God. So then... They're putting out a murderer, God damn it. I know. So then we get to the Dallas uh, Medical Center, which is where he makes his way to next. Um, uh, he's granted temporary privileges at this hospital while the officials are, like, getting the medical records from Baylor. However, red flags surface immediately. Uh, one nurse who had worked with Dunch uh, started to think that he was on drugs because he noticed that um, there was... The doctor had been wearing the same scrubs for three days. And the reason he could tell, because, you know, scrubs all look alike, is because the particular scrubs Dr. D wore three days in a row had a hole in the buttock region of the pants of his scrubs. And Dr. D liked to fly free, so he wasn't wearing undies. So this nurse saw 
his butt through the same pair of scrubs three days in a row and started to think like there's something wrong like either mental yeah. illness or like he's got a drinking problem or he's not changing his scrubs this is a hospital that's not hygienic yeah. that's fucking weird <laughs> so this is all like within days of him starting at the dallas medical center um sorry let me find and dallas and plano are very close to each other yes yeah so he didn't even have to move so dr d lasts less than a week at the Dallas Medical Center because his privileges are pulled after the death of his patient, Floella Brown, followed by the maiming of another patient, Mary um, Eford. So he kills, he only operates on two people. He kills Floella (gasps) and he maims Mary Eford. Okay, so let me find this real fast. So for Floella Brown... Dr. D had severed her vertebral artery and again refused to abort the surgery despite massive blood loss. Mm-hmm. He then packed it with too much of the substance that they put in to like stop the bleeding. Like he overstuffed it and she had a stroke as a result. <sighs> she was pronounced brain dead and ultimately her husband had to make the terrible <sighs> decision to take her off life support. Um, and so as, she, as the stroke is being suffered, Dunch does not respond to messages from the hospital for hours and then the next day scheduled an elective surgery on Mary Euford rather than care for his patient that's now like in ICU in a coma rather than look after her he's like no I'm gonna do this elective surgery instead does he get paid on commission or something I don't really know um I it's so crazy uh hospital officials are like totally annoyed when he refused to delay Mary Euford surgery and asked him to please take care of Floella Brown or transfer her out of his care to another doctor uh Dunch says that they should just drill a hole in Floella's head to relieve the pressure, but was they, that's what he wanted to do. But they were like, no, man, you can't do that. Um, he what? wasn't a brain surgeon. He didn't have the ability to do that. But he was like, I'll just go in and drill a hole. And they were like, no, you can't just drill a hole. Um, so while operating on Mary Eford, Dunch severed one of her nerve roots during spinal fusion surgery uh, while operating on the wrong portion of her back. He twisted a screw into another nerve left screw holes on the opposite side of her spine, failed to remove the disc that he was supposed to remove, and left surgical hardware in her muscle tissue. Oh, my God. So loose that it moved when touched. Despite um, several warnings from his colleagues that he was not performing these surgeries correctly, Dunch persisted. Eford was left paralyzed. She later recalled waking up feeling excruciating pain, a 10 plus on a scale of 1 to 10. Uh, people who were in the operating room for her surgery suspected that Dunch might have been intoxicated, recalling that his pupils were dilated. Okay. Oh, my God. Now we come to the heroes of our story. Or, like, the, you know, they're the heroes of our story. So longtime spinal surgeon Dr. Robert Henderson was called in to basically come in and fix the botched surgery done on Mary Eford. And when he saw the imaging from the surgery Dunch had performed, he was certain, like, there will be legal action. Like, he had never seen so much, in like, incorrect shit done. Yeah. Um, he likened what he found when he opened her up as to the results of a child playing with tinker toys or an erector set. Henderson described Dunch's surgery as an assault and concluded that Eford would have been bedridden, bedridden had he not come in and salvaged the surgery. Henderson was so convinced that there was no way that Dr. Dunch could actually be a doctor based on what he saw, that he must be an imposter. So he um, reached out to, sorry, let me find this. So he reaches out to the University of Tennessee and sends him a photo and is like, is this the guy that graduated with the 
MD, PhD, and they're like, yeah, no, that's him. But uh, they did learn, or Dr. Sorry, Dr. Henderson learned while he was talking to the university about the fact that he had been sent to impaired physician treatment for being yeah. suspected of being high. And he also learned that during his residency, Dr. D had performed only around 100 surgeries when a typical resident performs at minimum 1,000 surgeries oh. before they're then surgeons. 100 at most is all he had ever done during his residency. So not real experienced, guys. Not real experienced. Um, so after being, you know, terminated, temporary privileges revoked from the Dallas Medical Center, he received privileges at the Southampton Community Hospital in Dallas and also got a job as a, at an outpatient clinic. While there, he damaged um, another patient's spinal cord, leaving him without uh, right feeling on the right side of his body. He damaged Philip Mayfield's spinal cord, uh, leaving him paralyzed from the neck down. Uh, what else did he do? He, While attempting to remove degenerated discs in Tex Muse's back, he left surgical hardware floating between the spine and muscle tissue. Uh, like, that's just negligent. Yeah, Muse like, woke up in, yeah, considerable pain, but Dunge convinced, convinced him it was no- normal and then prescribed so much Percocet and that the pharmacist refused to fill the prescription. She was like, nah, nobody needs that much Percocet. Um, Whoa. Yeah. While operating on Jacqueline Troy, he cut out one of her vocal cords and an artery, as well as damaging her trachea. She was left barely able to speak above a whisper and had to be fed through feeding tubes. Um, Then Dunch applies for privileges at Methodist Hospital in Dallas. The hospital queried the, um, that NPBD, the National physicians database i feel like somebody should have an excel doc of all of the patients he screwed up like he he didn't help anybody yeah soon um so he's applied for privileges at methodist hospital in dallas and the hospital you know looks into him soon afterwards he severely maims jeff glidewell after mistaking part of his neck muscle for a tumor during routine oh cervical God. fusion, severing one of his vocal cords and cutting a hole in his esophagus and slicing one of his arteries. He then used a sponge in his neck to soak up the blood and forgot it was there, left it in there. When he sewed him back up, he left the, yeah, the sponge in there. Um, the sponge triggered a severe bloodborne infection that caused Gladwell to become septic. And when other doctors discovered the sponge, Dunch refused to return to help remove it. After several days, Dr. Kirby was brought in to repair the damage and later described what he found after opening Glidewell back up as the work of a crazed maniac. He told Glidewell that it was clear Dunch had tried to kill him. Glidewell was left with only one vocal cord, permanent damage to his esophagus, and partial paralysis. Kirby claimed that it looked as if Dunch had tried to decapitate Glidewell and contended that such a botched surgery has not happened in the United States of America before. (sighs) Glidewell was reportedly still suffering the ill effects of Dunch's operation years later. After this, Kirby wrote a detailed complaint to the Texas Medical Board, calling Dunch a sociopath who was a clear and present danger to the citizens of Texas. Under heavy lobbying from Kirby and Henderson, the Texas Medical Board suspend, but don't revoke, suspend Dunch's license on June 26th of 2013. The lead investigator on the case later revealed that she wanted Dunch's license suspended while the 10-month probe was underway, but the board... Um, the board's attorneys were not willing to go along. So they call in veteran neurosurgeon Martin Lazar to review the case. And Lazar was scathingly critical of Dunch's work. 
He um, berated him for missing the signs that Martin was bleeding out, saying, you can't not know that and be a neurosurgeon. Eventually, the Texas Medical Board revokes Dunch's medical license on December 6th of 2013. So Dunch has to move out of Texas. He moves in with his parents in Denver, Colorado, and goes into a downward spiral. He declares bankruptcy after listing debts over a million dollars. He's arrested for a DUI. He's taken in for psychiatric evaluation um, in Dallas, Texas, during one of the visits to his kids, and arrested in Dallas for shoplifting $800 worth of stuff from Walmart. Um, Weird. Yeah. So he's like clearly deteriorating, probably lots of drugs and all that stuff. But Dr. Henderson and Dr. Kirby still fear that Dr. D could move somewhere else and just do this all over again. He could theoretically get a medical license in a different state. So convinced that he was a clear and present danger to the public, they urged the Dallas County District Attorney's Office to pursue criminal charges. Um, The inquiry kind of went nowhere until uh, 2015 when the statute of limitations on these crimes was like months away from running out. Oh my gosh. Um, But part of the problem for the prosecutors were that, you know, was going to be to prove that Dunch's actions were willful as as defined under Texas law. But after interviewing dozens of his patients and their survivors, prosecutors concluded that Dunch's actions were indeed criminal and nothing short of imprisonment would prevent him from practicing medicine again. As part of their investigation... Prosecutors obtained an email he had sent to his mistress and nurse practitioner, Kimberly Morgan, and where he boasted that he was ready to leave the love and kindness and goodness and patience that I mix with everything else that I am and become a cold-blooded killer. So he like wrote her this email all about how he, he manages to always get everything right, even when he puts in no effort or does everything wrong. And he's like, so if I just take away all the good parts of me... I'll get away with everything. I can just become a cold-blooded killer. So after the prosecutors find that, they're like, oh, yep, we're definitely going to arrest you. So in July of 2015, approximately a year and a half after his license is revoked, Dunch is arrested in Dallas and charged with six felony counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, being his hands and his surgical tools, Mm -hmm. and uh, five counts of aggravated assault causing serious bodily injury, and one count of injury to an el- elderly person, which would have been Mary Eford. Yeah. Um, and they were these indictments came down four months before the statute of limitations would have run out. Oh, thank God. The last charge was for the maiming and paralyzing of Mary Eford. Prosecutors put a high priority on that charge as it provided the widest sentencing range with the possibility that Dr. D could face life in prison if convicted. After 13 days of trial, the jury needed only four hours to convict him for the maiming of Eford, and on February 20th, 2017, Dr. D was, in fact, sentenced to life in prison. Um, <sighs> on December 10th of 2018, the Texas Court of Appeals affirmed his conviction by a two-to-one split, and on May 8th of 2019, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals refused Dunch's pe- petition for discretionary review. All four hospitals that employed Christopher Dunch have ongoing civil cases, and I really hope all four hospitals lose. Dr. D's conviction has been called a precedent-setting case, as it is believed to be the first time that a physician has been convicted on criminal charges for actions in the course of their medical work. The Dallas County District Attorney's Office called it a historic case with respect to prosecuting a doctor who had done wrong during surgery. So that is the story of Dr. Death, and it really made me think of this this one line in, in the Joe versus the volcano, yeah. where they're on the boat and Joe asks Patricia, do you believe in God? And Patricia says, I believe in myself. And Joe says, what does that mean? And Patricia's like, I have confidence in myself. And one of the things that 
people said is that he it's it's unclear. Obviously, he did not know what he was doing, yeah. but he refused to accept that he wasn't amazing at his job. And they said that the first time that he realized he was a bad surgeon was during trial when other surgeons were pointing out what he should have done. And he was like, oh, I should have done that. I didn't realize that. What? So his own ego and hubris combined with obviously like sociopathic uh, behavioral issues and drug problems. Yeah. Right. Led him to believe that he wasn't doing anything wrong or he could get away with it because he was a doctor. Oh, my God. And your spine is I don't even think there's like an easy spine surgery out there. Like it's your spine. If yeah. you mess something up. Oh, my God. Thirty four or thirty three of the thirty eight patients that he was allowed to operate on were like permanently Oh damaged God. or lost their lives. Isn't that insane? That is so upsetting. Yeah. So that is the story of Dr. Death. And, and Joe, Joe versus, versus the, volcano. the volcano. So Joe versus Dr. Death, I yeah. guess it'll be. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I know. I, I kind of like have to just sit with that. The more and more you kept telling me, I'm like, how come no one stopped this? Like, even the what the guy who like physically held him back, should, yeah. couldn't you just go to the police at that point? Well, it's uh, eventually that's what they did. I mean, yeah. that's why it's so extreme. So because of all of the, the bureaucratic bullshit and because of the fear of lawsuits and blah, 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 all of these hospitals... We're kind of like, we won't keep him on because he's clearly no good, yeah. but we'll just let him go rather than like report him to make, get him fired because they would face lawsuits or whatever. So that's why doctors um, Henderson and Kirby ended up going to the prosecutor's office and they said, we believe only the police are capable of stopping him. Ugh. We will not get a medical board to stop this guy. We've tried. We've tried for two years. Oh. Oh, my God. That's incredible. I think I'll have to listen. I've heard of that podcast, and mm -hmm. I've heard it's amazing. It is really good. Yeah. And there's multiple seasons where there's other doctors who do bad things. Oh, gosh. So if medical malpractice doesn't terrify you, I'm like, I don't know if I want to know about this stuff. Yeah, no, um, it's true. But yeah, that was the one thing that go always to Yelp. stuck Check out, out your Yelp reviews. Don't go to Yelp. <laughs> no, Talk I mean. Talk to, like, other doctors. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Talk to other. There's got to be, like, a Yelp for the community, right? Yeah. Like a Yelp-like thing for doctors right. like anyone who's been maimed by a doctor needs to start a website where they say that they've been maimed by that doctor yeah. and name that person right um yeah just a completely crazy story but i knew the minute we decided to do joe versus the volcano that i wanted it to have something to do with a doctor that lied yes. or mistreated that's or great. misdiagnosed or i think that's amazing and guys if you're in for an hour or so of some weird but like interesting uh rom-com Mm -hmm. uh ness i would say i would suggest watch joe oh, versus totally the volcano check it out like i thought it was it was it, it's really stylized in like a way like we said mm -hmm. you just don't see that kind of movie anymore yeah so it has it's there's something satisfying about the style stylisticness of it but so yes i do recommend i would say it's not my favorite movie of the whole uh which we will be covering next week is sleepless in seattle yes. Such an interesting movie. Cannot wait. Can't wait. All right. We will see you next Tuesday, Rom Criminals. Bye. Bye. What is it? Just popping? Yeah, it's popping. My favorite. What's my favorite quote? A pussy popping in a handstand. Pussy popping in a handstand. <laughs> yeah. It's something that our friend Christopher used to do at the clubs when we got real turnt. Oh, yeah. Remember the clubs? Yeah. And it wasn't really a club. It was usually just like a a bar. A house party. Yeah. It was anywhere there was music. We were like, it would just escalate, escalate yeah. as the night went on. As it does.